Welcome to the future of figure skating. My guest this week, Yarun Prinz, is a judge, technical controller, and referee, and also serves as the acting discipline manager for figure skating in the Netherlands. Notably, he judged the pairs competition at both the Beijing Olympics and the World Championships last year. At the ISU Congress in June, Yarun presented several proposals on behalf of the Netherlands, including the idea of a split judging panel with half the judges marking grade of execution and the other half doing program components. This episode will be a real treat for the skating nerds out there and for anyone who's curious about how judging works and how change is made at the ISU. It's already been an extremely busy season for Yarun. He's judged so far at the Cranberry Cup, the Britannia Cup, the Junior Grand Prix in Ostrava, and by the time this episode comes out, he also will have judged at the U.S. Classic Challenger event. We went straight into talking about the changes to the judging system this season, especially the switch to the three components instead of five, and how that has impacted his judging so far this year. A few technical terms that it might help you to know before jumping into this podcast include the Official Assessment Commission, or OAC, and the PCS Corridor. The corridor refers to a range of plus or minus one and a half points from the average score that's given for a program component. Scores for PCS outside of that range are considered anomalies. The OAC is a group of judges who review protocols and the referees report after each ISU competition and examine any anomalies in marks and other indications of potential bias. The OAC reports then go into the evaluation of judges. This is all an essential and poorly understood part of figure skating. And so with that introduction, here we go. I'm excited to have your imprints on the future of figure skating. First off, you've been judging in a couple of competitions already this season and are headed to another one soon. I did. I'm going to U.S. Classic next week. So that's uh, I'm, I'm flying in on Monday. In U.S. Classic, I'm judging. Uh, last week in Ostrava and Junior Grand Prix, I've been judging as well. I've been judging the 35 junior women, which was quite a lot, and it was a long event. And on top of that, I was asked to to be the judge number six in ice dance because they were they were short of dance judges. This week in Riga, it seems to be better. I think all the panels are like filled. And there's ten dance judges, so they could put the whole nine on each panel. So that's good. But it was uh, it was a pleasure to to judge and uh, especially using the three components, which is new this season. And uh, well, I had my fun with that, so to speak. <laughs> Do you like using the three components so far? Yes, I absolutely like the change towards three components. Uh, we also voted yes, of course, at the Congress for that. I think the three components separate these different parts of a figure skating program uh, much more nicely than it was the case in five using five components. So that gives you as a judge the opportunity to to isolate each part of the program and to set to separate your marks more. Because a skater can be good in skating skills and especially on the junior level, not so be not being so accomplished in delivering the performance or expressing the music or yeah, using the ice as well as a senior. So there you can, well, I could at least separate uh, the marks quite well last week. That's great to see. I hope that that becomes more of the standard for how judges use those. I remember seeing when it was first announced, I think there was a lot of uh, misunderstanding among the fans who were seeing it and thinking, oh, transitions are being taken away. No, they are not taken away. In the past, uh, I, would, I would have to say that, um, let's say, you, speaking about five components, like it was like last season and from the beginning when we introduced the new system, for me, composition always comes first and transitions are just part of the composition in a way. I'm actually glad that's sort of merged together as they're now called connections and they're just part of the, of the component composition. So they're one of the, of the five criteria. I have the, I have the sheet in, in front of me here, <laughs> uh -huh. just to not miss anything. But uh, the connections, uh, they're they're just part of of the composition component. So they're not they're not gone by by all means. They're not gone. Yeah, it seems very logical when you actually look at what goes under each of the three components that there's a clear delineation between each of those categories and less room for overlap between them. Yeah, exactly. 
So what I tried to do, because I, I also judged in Cranberry Cup in the U.S., Boston, mm-hmm. in your beautiful new center in Norwood, where you will have this uh, Skate America, wonderful facility. And, uh, well, I, I judged all this, the single skating there. Well, there was only single skating this year. Last year, it was combined with ice dance and with pairs. So I, t- I tried to mark each of the criteria within those three components individually. But even so, I found myself, there's just a limited uh, time to do that because there's it, it, effectively, there's still 14 criteria within those three components. So to tick them off individually, uh, you need to think very, very quickly. So I, I tried to do that, but then I also asked myself the question, thinking about composition, I would ask myself the question, was it, was it a figure skating program? What we call like a package. Uh, under presentation, um, I would ask myself, how was it delivered on the day? Um, and how was it expressed and performed? And under skating skills, can the skater basically skate? Because all those, all those five criteria is just basically skating skills. And maybe we should say skills, as clarity of movement, body lines, etc., also comes now uh, within the component of skating skills. So maybe we should think of that component uh, as skills, not only skating skills. That makes sense. For composition, does it get easier as the season goes on, as you're more familiar with programs? It always seems like that is the thing that doesn't change so much competition to competition if a skater has the same choreography for their program. Uh, I think the skaters uh, differ from competition to competition. Uh, now the programs are also new to them and they will grow as the season progresses. So come, let's say, Europeans and World Championship, the programs will probably look more mature, more, let's say, uh, skated in, uh, fit as a nice, as a costume. So so they, they evolve over the season. That, that's That's one thing. And, um, well, of course, we see different skaters from competition to competition. Sometimes you see skaters during the whole competition, like a couple of times, uh, but still, still it's, uh, it's different from competition to competition. And f- for the skaters, it's new. For us as a judge, it's new. So also I have to get the terms to that. Um, that was my challenge at Cranberry, how to, how to work with these three components, how to separate, how to deliver the right feedback to the skaters. Um, so yeah, for us, it's new and um, for them, it's new. And that's why also, as you said, this year, there will be no assessments based only on the components. And that makes a lot of sense uh, because everyone is sort of finding their way towards the approach, how to approach these components. Mm-hmm. So there is there is disparity. I mean, last week in Ostrava, you could see there's quite a disparity in the component marks. And in a way, I think that's good because, uh, well, it's not set in stone like uh, criteria uh, in elements where you have, okay, you have the positive bullets, you have the negative features. So that's, that's, more, uh, that's more analytical thinking, but yeah, judging components, it's, uh, it's, it's more like a holistic approach to a program. So there will be always, there will be always differences. I think that's good. That's why we are five or seven or nine judges. Yeah, it seems like that's one of the most difficult things is determining what is good divergence between the judges because that's independence and everyone having their own opinion versus divergence because there's bias or people aren't doing their job well. Exactly. Uh, well, speaking of bias, uh, as you said, okay, we will not assess you uh, based on components only, but uh, OAC, as we, we will probably discuss that a little bit further, Official Assessment Commission will evaluate uh, the GOEs, the grade of execution, and will also evaluate uh, potential cases of national bias. So that's still being evaluated as I think it should be. So we're not we're not completely out of the woods, so to speak. So we are evaluated uh, if we are doing an honest job. And I think that should be. I want to go back to the beginning. And if you could tell a little bit about your story in skating, how did you get to be in the position that you are in now and some of your story getting to this point? Yeah, I was a single skater um, back in the days, I have to say. Uh, I wasn't very good. <laughs> I didn't even make it to the national championships in the Netherlands. Um, but I skated from, let's say, age 12. So I started late till age 18. 
At 18, I became a judge and uh, I progressed rapidly. Took uh, Well, there wasn't an exam to become an international judge, but I, I became an international judge at uh, age 25. And I took the exam for world judge at age 28. So that progressed uh, quickly. I think I judged my first championship at 30 or 31. So that's uh, Europeans. That's uh, already a long time ago. Well, being not, not a very successful skater, I, but I'm an analytical person by nature, I found it very interesting uh, how to judge skating. So that's, that's why I started. And I was lucky that there was like a new generation approaching when I started. So if you look at to the, into the list of uh, international judges, we, you will see that uh, most of us are sort of similar age. Yeah, so we all start as sort of same uh, in the same time. So there is a generation uh, going and there's a new generation coming. So we are quite long in the business, all of us in the Netherlands. And what is the process of education that you had to go through in order to become a judge? Yeah, I can I can speak for the time when I started, but it's different now. Let's say how it's now is that you have to have an they have to take an exam to become an international judge. So the ISU evaluates you your national activity that should be sufficient, and it should be a couple of seasons, like two or three seasons. And you have to hand in this activity so that they can check, even because the protocols, even of national competition, they're all online, so they can potentially check that. Then you are, the new judges are taken, well, last year they did it online. I think this year they were in Frankfurt at the seminar. Uh, maybe part of that was done virtually. I'm not, I'm not even sure of that. So they have to take a written exam, which tests them, tests their knowledge about the rules and the application of the rules, like they have, to know the, they have to know the reductions by heart. They have to know the positive bullets by heart, things like that. And then there's a practical judging part where they, well, they would use a, either a real competition or they would just do screen judging. Then there's a, a roundtable discussion like we have in competition. So you have to be able to use the, let's say, the, the vocabulary, uh, which is in the sheets, like here, this one components uh, you have to you have to be able to to justify your mark using this vocabulary like I, you cannot say i like the program because everyone can say that you have to use the right vocabulary to justify your your marks which makes sense so it, it requires also a, a command of using english speaking english and, and uh, being a, being able to explain what you what you judged in english and what kind of continuing education do you have? Is it just continuing to keep up with the changes that come out each year? What kinds of ongoing things do you do? Yes, both as a, being a judge or being a technical panel member, I'm a technical controller for singles and for pairs. There is a kind of a continuous education. You have to recertify every once in a while. It's changed after Congress. So I think now it's every two years. But part of that can be uh, done virtually. So you have to do it online. You have to, can do an online recertification. And I think once in a while, they make you come back to Frankfurt or they're doing a live, doing a face-to-face -face seminar where they let you practice and uh, take you through a test. For technical panel, I did this uh, recertification in Frankfurt a couple of times as I'm controller for 10, 11 years, something like that. Um, so I have to I have to come back to Frankfurt once in a while. And then you have to do screen judging and take a written test to test your knowledge about the rules and the technical handbook. And it's more or less the same for judges. You have to go to a seminar. So I have to, I have to, I have to go to a seminar for ice dance uh, because I'm also a dance judge. So I went in June, I think it was, to Poland for a dance seminar, um, which makes a lot of sense because the rules and nice, the, the programs and the rules and nice dance, they change like every year. So there's new rhythm dance every year. There's lots of rule changes also in free dance every year. So it makes sense to go to these seminars and listen to the moderators and then to practice. I was happy to be there because it, it, it's really set me up for the season. And I did last year, last week I did ice dance and in Cranberry I did, was it Cranberry? Yeah. No, where was it? <laughs> I waited for, I did ice dance. The season already feels long. Okay. <laughs> it already feels long ago. I think next week I'm judging ice dance as well. No, Britannia Cup, I just ice dance. It was, it was a nice event. One novice couple, quite cute, young novice team. Then three junior teams, and uh, it was uh, a small but good level senior event with seven couples, I think. 
Yeah, that's great. So there is continuous education. Coming back to your question, there is continuous education only if you are at uh, ISU level, like I am in all disciplines. If you judge a championship, if you're at the championship, then there is a longer um, initial judges meeting, uh, like two and a half hours, and that basically recertifies you your status as a judge. So let's say I went to Worlds and Olympics last year. I went through this uh, through this initial judges meeting. So for as a judge in singles and pairs, I'm automatically recertified uh, doing that. And effectively as controller, I did four continents last year in pairs. And then I'm also automatically recertified because in as a controller or as a specialist, uh, you have to, to, to do a mini seminar, as they call it. So that's also a two-hour session where you have to moderate certain parts. Let's say I, you have to speak about a couple elements. So in pairs, I did uh, I, I covered uh, throw jumps and uh, solo jumps. And I, I covered actually all, all the other elements as well because I had prepared uh, clips to speak about and with questions. And so it was like an interactive session. Watching the ISU Congress, it was clear that you're one of the leading voices for the changes in the judging for PCS, and you've been involved in some of the other changes that have been proposed and finally achieved around raising the age limit for senior skaters. So looking at the changes that went into effect um, after the last Congress, what are your reactions? Uh, we talked a little bit about the components, but what else is um, important for us to be watching for, for the impact on the, those changes over this season? Yeah, well, I, I can say that if my federation uh, proposes uh, something for figure skating, it's, it's effectively my proposal. But I, of, of course, I need to pass it to the federation if they agree with those changes, because sometimes uh, things are controversial, like the age limit, uh, which we proposed four years ago, and we deliberately did not propose it this time. Because I knew that other federations and at some point even I knew that ISU would propose it. So I thought, okay, we, we back off. This is quite a, quite a controversial subject. And uh, are we do, we, do we want to propose it ourselves or do we let others do it? So that's kind of a political question. Yeah. Um, so this, this we didn't propose, but we did propose other things like the split panel. I knew that it might not go ahead first time, but that is like a tactic. Mm -hmm. Let's say throwing pieces of meat in the arena and finding out how they are, how they are perceived. If they're eaten, if they're just ignored, uh, what's happening. And then sometimes uh, you need two or three attempts to, to get something done. Maybe you remember, we didn't propose that, but it, it was like three attempts to get uh, music played electronically or to get music, to get vocal music accepted for singles and pair. That took a while. That took two or three congresses. There needs to be a certain momentum for it. And uh, at, at some moment it will pass. How much discussion happens before the Congress among, you know, among federations, among people who will be going versus sort of what has to happen when you're all in one place? Yeah, there is, of course, a lot of informal talks during competition, mainly during the big competitions when... Uh, when let's say the leaders in each federation are present, either the officials or maybe also the presidents of the federations, let's say worlds, there are a lot of federation presidents uh, on site, maybe not during COVID times, but before, and I think now it will be back again like that. So there's informal talks. So you, you can test out your ideas if they're ripe to make it into a proposal to see if people like it or not. And even so, if, if it's something for the future, you, know, you can still propose it and see, see what happens. So, so some, some, let's say, ideas are ripe and can be passed, like age limit that's, that got passed now because that basically was proposed by ISU itself. So that also always has a better chance. And some ideas are maybe more for the future, like split panel. Uh, but we, we got away with, uh, with a resolution at Congress. The resolution said that we're going to test the concept of splitting the panel and we volunteered to have it done, uh, to have it tested also at our competition in, in, in the Netherlands in February. So I'm looking forward to how that's going. I didn't hear about it so far, but uh, I will find out maybe next week speaking to some people in ISU or in uh, Lake Placid. What is the idea? How we are, how we are progressing this? There needs to be things done, software changes, uh, processes, and so on and so on. 
And did I understand that the split panel had been tested once before in the past, but not under the same circumstances? It had been tested once in Oberstdorf. I don't know how long it was ago, like eight years ago in that sort of time frame. But it, um, it, I don't think it has been tested under the right conditions. I think there were nine judges who were all double duty judges, so they could judge single and pairs and Iceland's, like I'm a double duty judge myself, as we call it. I didn't take part in that experiment, um, but I heard about it. Some judges did judge GOE and one component. Some judges judged three components. Some did four. So there was, there was a different approach for each judge almost. And maybe that didn't work uh, in the best way. As it was, of course, you, need to, you, you would need to train the people. And maybe that wasn't uh, planned well enough. I don't know. So it was a one-off experiment. And uh, it wasn't progressed any further. But I think let's say skating has evolved so much over the years the programs have become so much more complex and so much more demanding for the skaters and also for us to evaluate uh, that i think still we went from 27 to 14 criteria components is still a lot i think it, it, the, the judging uh, the, the assessments uh, the, the actual evaluation of the of a skating program will be better if we split the panel if we split the duty of uh, the judge, some judges will judge GOE only, some will judge components only, like it's done for other sports, like rhythmic gymnastics. Um, I think we will have a, um, yeah, a more accurate assessment. GOE, I think it's judged more or less fine. There are some differences here and there, of course, especially in a large field, because you have to be very focused and concentrated and you can miss maybe if a jump is under rotated and things like that so you can make a mistake for components uh, if you have to do that at the same time it's still very demanding i found out last week judging the 35 women in ostrava it was really demanding and i think it's uh, it's it's better for Mentally, to keep your focus for that much time is very challenging. Yeah, because the free skating, it was five and a half hours of judging, let's say only with two eyes resurfacing. So it's uh, it, it's a long time being focused and set there. Yeah, to, going through these criteria 35 times in a row, it's, it's, it's a lot. So I think we can be more accurate uh, if we split those duties. Yeah, it seemed like some of the opposition to the split panel, something seemed like they were logistics that could be overcome with a little bit of planning. I was fascinated in to realize that one of the things that was being said as opposition was you would have to add one more person, which would take away one potential seat from a broadcaster or a, you know, a, a VIP seat, which seemed like a small thing that you could be overcome, but it was funny. <laughs> yeah. I know Japan wants to sell all their potential seats, so they want to make money for the events, which I think is fair. But effectively, um, if you have, well, we will have 10 judges. Let's say for a Grand Prix, we'll have 10 judges, five plus five. And now we have nine for a grumpy, so you need to seat one more person. But you can you can put them a little bit closer together if you judge if number one is judging GOE, number two is judging components, and number three is judging GOE, number four is doing components. So everyone sitting next to you is doing something else than you're than you are doing. So you cannot look left or right because it doesn't make sense. So you can seat them a little bit closer together. So there would not be any seat going uh, going astray for for sales. One of the other things that came up was the idea that judges would have less power because you would be doing, you know, you'd be doing less. I thought that was kind of an, an interesting argument as well. And I wonder, you know, how you feel about that idea that sort of taking away any piece of a judge's role was somehow diminishing it. No, I don't think it's uh, it's diminishing your role. Okay, you will just be more focused on a specific part of a program. Right now, we're already not evaluating a difficulty because that's given to the technical panel. So that's already out of our hands. Whereas uh, in my first Europeans, I judged pairs and there was no video replay. So you had one go at each twist lift. So imagine how accurate that was. Not very accurate, to be honest. Uh, and now we have a video replay, even as a judge and as a and technical panel also has a video replay. They can play uh, the twist lift in slow motion. We count as judges, but still I can look at that element multiple times. 
-hmm. not i think the the argument of losing power is uh, is not the right argument i mean we are we are in service to the sport in service to the caters and the coaches to give the right evaluation anything that can help that that process to improve to improve that evaluation i think is helpful so losing the power no it's not about power it's it's being accurate in your assessment uh, towards the skater and the and the coach and the audience, of course. And I think that's what counts. Yes, definitely. Since you mentioned the camera and replays, what do you think about sort of increasing some of the roles of technology in judging? There have been, you know, proposals, oh, there should be multiple camera angles or some of the things we see in competitions from Japan where they're measuring speed and ice coverage. Yeah, I know. Yeah. The thing is, there is only a limited time for evaluation and uh, also for the technical panel, which is usually uh, the slower of the two parts. So if you add another camera, in a way, it can help to increase accuracy. As from one camera angle, you might not be sure if a jump is unrotated or on the quarter or clean or whatever. And then, you know, okay, let's, let's check from the set from the other angle. But what if you have eight reviews or and seven on jumps and one on a spin? So you're already spending at least two minutes to get through these eight reviews. So if you then have to check the second camera angle... It adds time. I'm I'm not sure of that. If if that's uh, if that's beneficial, I mean it it it's beneficial for the accuracy, yes, for sure. But it adds time to the review process. So it's add, it adds waiting time for the skater, for the audience, for television. So I'm not convinced that's uh, that's the right approach. I'm I'm looking more for uh, simplification of rules, clarity of criteria to evaluate. For single and pairs, okay, we have this Q, we have this unrotated, we have this downgrade, so that's that's gonna stay. Uh, I think that's it's it's fair, uh, but then maybe instead of the second camera angle, we need better image quality, better frame rates uh, to be sure. Okay, we watch one time, it was first time in the review. Okay, we know for sure if this is unrotated or on the quarter. Yeah, so we can. Sometimes you have to watch two times or even three times if the panel disagrees then the controller has to decide so it also adds to the time uh, so if the image quality is better and the frame rate is better uh, we might save time and we might not even need a second camera angle the other side of judging are the things that you know technology is never going to help with which is the pcs elements when there is such a wide variety possible of music and dance influences and different aesthetics that people can be presenting. Um, how do you compensate for, you know, what your own personal preferences are in there or that you may be more educated in one, you know, one form of dance than another or something along those lines? Yeah, that's one of the many biases that we have to el eliminate in our in our thinking. Because there, there, of course, are many biases and many pitfalls, many traps that we can fall into. If we know the skater is from a certain country with certain coach, uh, if we like the music, if the skater has done a great result uh, two weeks ago, there's a lot of biases. Our problem is to eliminate all these biases and just judge what we see on the day. And uh, music plays a role for sure. Uh, and other things play a role for sure. So uh, this is our job to to just sit there. And uh, one of the one of the things that we hear in seminars, you don't have to like it in order to market. Yeah. So uh, I I can I can hear music that I really don't like or that I hear for the thousandth time, like Swan Lake. But still, if this is a great Swan Lake, if the skater delivers to the music in character with the music, then I have to market accordingly. So even if I don't like it, I have to give it an honest uh, judgment. And that's what I'm. That's what I'm always doing. At least trying from the top of my uh, best knowledge to to do. And everyone makes mistakes, but uh, I'm really trying my best to to give an honest assessment uh, for everyone on on that day. Yeah, I thought it was very interesting. I talked to Caitlin Weaver on the podcast earlier, and she's going to be on the um, technical committee for dance and had the idea, what if for dance, at least there were a judge on the panel who specifically came from a dance background and that their role, whether they also marked the other things or not, but that their role was to say, okay, the rhythm dance this year is a tango. You know, is this a good tango? 
I was interested in that because it does seem like a heavy lift for, you know, for skating judges to not only to be aware of all of the specifics of the skating side of things, but also to be able to assess, is this a good representation of this form of dance as well? Yeah, that's a very fair point that, that Kaylin raised. Let's talk this season. We have junior program and the junior program is Spanish dancers. And the senior program is Latin dancers. So in each category, you have like eight possible eight possibilities, which effectively you would have all to know if this is a merengue or a mambo or a samba or a bachata or whatever. And that is a tremendous job, I think. If if that if that uh, music, first of all, if the music is correct, because this we have to assess as well as dance judge. And then if the if the expression of the character of that music is correct, and that is even more difficult. So you have to be very knowledgeable and, and, and very into dance as a discipline, not even dance on ice, but dance in, in, in general. If this is really the character of, of that dance that's expressed by the team. Um, so let's say thinking about proposals uh, for the future, where I see this could be going, one, one step is, is the split panel. And I think for me, it's a pivotal step. Because if we achieve the split panel, we can say, okay, uh, some judges are maybe better in GOE, but not so good in assessing components. So you could uh, even have a separate list for that or a separate qualification for that. And then uh, when that is done, maybe for uh, assessing the components, like Caitlin probably suggested, and I didn't listen to the podcast, but I I will now, (laughs) is bringing in professionals who are really, let's say, the experts in, let's say, in Latin or in whatever dance is due for the season. Uh, to bring in that outside perspective that can even make the judgment better. I think that's a very good point. And maybe this is really something for the future. If we if we are moving towards split panel and then let's say professionalize this a little bit more to bring in for, let's say maybe for the components only, this is just an idea that I'm making up right now because I, I would have like five ideas each day. <laughs> I have something planned for next Congress and for the Congress after, but uh, this is maybe a new perspective um, to, to bring in professionals for mainly an ice dance, I would say, this specific type of dance. So if it's Latino, bring in some Latino experts. If it's a waltz, bring in some ballroom experts. Why not? Yeah, to make the, the assessment even more correct. I know even when I'm a relatively uneducated audience member when it comes to dance that I will see something differently when I know, for example, that Gabrielle and Guillaume had worked with a dancer who is an expert on the whacking style of dance. And so I see that instead of thinking, what are they doing? Are they appropriating something that they don't really know much about? I go, oh, no, okay, they they put in their work. They're really doing a good Mm -hmm. representation of that form of dance. And so... I think yeah. that in some ways that's an expectation of the top teams that they will do that work, but maybe may tougher on the teams that don't have as many resources, but still that there would be that level of their own work and research that goes into representing whatever the rhythm of the year is. If that can help uh, to make the assessments better, the evaluation of the programs better, anything that can help, I'm, uh, I'm in favor of. I'm also in favor of, of having less rules and less restrictions in ISDN, but that's a personal opinion. Uh, I think some people in ISU are maybe conservative towards ISDN, but I think there's already a big step that in senior, we don't have a pattern dance element this year. That's a big step. Mm-hmm. I think it's a tryout to, to see how this goes. Yeah. But there are still many restrictions like uh, stops, not many, not more than so many seconds, separation, not more than two arm length, not more than so and so many, blah, blah, blah. So it's a lot of restrictions, uh, crossing the midline, 10 seconds without uh, moving and so on. There is a lot of things to yeah to take care of because we have this choreo violation button. Uh, so I have to think uh, a lot about, okay, is this is this uh, okay or is this not okay? And it, to, to assess if this is uh, a choreo violation, which is essentially only one point, takes my focus away in a little bit from assessing the performance as a whole. I, I hope it can be simplified in the future to make, make our assessment yeah, even better. 
Yeah, it's an interesting question about, you know, the specific technical elements. I think this is particularly dances where it's the clearest between what are the technical and required elements versus what are areas for creative freedom in some ways and for skaters to show their individuality. I was really interested to hear once that um, I think Megan Duhamel suggested that maybe there should be a choreo spin or a choreo lift in pairs because pairs can get so repetitive of everyone doing the same thing. But maybe they could have a little freedom to try some of the things that that they get to do when they're in shows, but don't have the space in the program or the value of showing. And that was sort of an, an interesting idea. But do you take something out to fit something like that in? I, I agree with Megan on that. And um, I have to say that Ice Dance is a little bit further ahead than single and pairs because they have two programs that are quite different. I mean, there's a rhythm dance, uh, so this is that it has more rules, it has more uh, restrictions, and there's a free dance, which is totally different. Um, and I would like to see the same concept in some sort of way in single and pairs. And one step, uh, I think an important step is done this year in junior, where we got rid of the step sequence in the free skate and replaced it by a choreo sequence, which is a different element. It requires different skills from the skaters, more, let's say, to do with uh, how to, to do skating moves and uh, how to uh, be in character with the music and how to present a highlight of that music in this choreo sequence. And that's quite different than uh, than skating a step sequence, which uh, you need tech to be technically skilled to do all these turns and clusters and whatever. Uh, so this is one step in the right direction, and uh, I hope, yes, may, in future, well, maybe this is part of the proposals for next Congress or the Congress after, to have to come to two programs that are essentially more separated from each other, also in single and pairs. And there is a lot of elements, like uh, in pairs, these air rolls, or let's say these acrobatic elements, which are now not allowed, and why not allow one of them uh, in, free, in the free program? To make it uh, more interesting for the audience, to have something uh, something more exciting and something more creative, why not? I'm all open for that. So let's see where we can go with that uh, in the next few years. I wanted to ask you, for the sake of the education of listeners and the fans, what a few of the roles that I think there isn't a lot of knowledge about in the wider world and the things that you've done before. So can you speak a little bit about what the role of the referee is and some of the tasks that the referee takes on in a competition? Yeah, I'm actually also qualified as a referee, even if I don't fulfill that role uh, many times, because I'm usually either a judge or a technical controller. But the referee is, of course, uh, the, the leader of the pack, so to speak, the leader of the, the judges. It's like the technical controller leads the technical panel and the referee leads the judges panel. Uh, but uh, the referee has cer certain specific tasks by himself, by herself. For instance, you need to, to lead your panel through, uh, let's say, meetings. Initial judges meeting, roundtable discussion, the referee is leading that. But during the event, the different role of the, the referee in the U.S. versus the referee uh, elsewhere, I think there's like this concept of chief referee in the U.S. And the chief referee would make all the panels and do all the time schedule, etc. So there's a bit more to it. Yeah. But if you're refereeing an event in a competition, basically you also have to time this, uh, the program. If the program is over time, you have to apply a deduction. If something from the costume falls on the ice, you have to apply a deduction. And then if there's a problem with skater or if there's a problem with the rink, let's say, if, the, if there's power failure, you have to deal with that and take a decision. Uh, so there is, um, yeah, especially when when this, when there's a problem with the skater, it, it gets uh, quite demanding because you have to decide on the spot. Yeah, if the skater has an interruption, maybe uh, we remember all these cases with uh, Yulia Luknitskaya, with Alexander Mayor, with a bleeding nose. We have to decide what's uh, in the interest of the safety of the skater, you have to take the right decision. And it got a little bit easier for the referee uh, I think two congresses ago when uh, they said okay you, you need to be in touch with uh, on the headset with uh, the medical people so the medical people will advise the referee if the skater is able uh, if there's a, a alleged injury or something if the skater is able to resume or not 
And of course, you have to follow this advice. But mainly, you're you're in charge as a referee to uh, yeah to say if the skater is withdrawn or not withdrawn in such a case. So it is quite a demanding uh, role, especially when something goes wrong. Then uh, yeah, then you have to 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 have this instant knowledge. Okay, what what do I have to do? Uh, do I have to whistle or not? Is there is there a timeout or not? Mm-hmm. So this is this you have to know by heart and and apply instantly. And especially with the cases where a skater maybe has had a bad fall and there's been a lot more attention recently to the dangers of concussions and some of these things where the skater might want to get up and keep going. But is exactly. that actually, yeah. you know, in the interests of their health is a really hard call to make, I would assume. It is a very hard call to make. And uh, unfortunately, over the last three or four years, I've seen too many accidents in pairs. Mm-hmm. I've been uh, witnessing the one uh, in Zagreb uh, with uh, Ashley and Tim. Mm-hmm. And I've been witnessing uh, another one with Ashley and Tim, now at Worlds. One as a controller, one as a judge, but not as a referee. Uh, but I would not want to be in the shoes of the referee. That's uh, that's for sure, because that's that's a difficult decision. I mean, the one in Zagreb, I remember really well. Was she on? Was she falling on her head? Was her head on the ice? Uh, is there an alleged concussion? Do you have to whistle? Maybe as a referee, you look towards the coaches. What are the coaches doing? What are the coaches saying? Are they saying stop, stop, stop? Then maybe you have to whistle. But in this case, they didn't make this signal. And even I looked up to the coaches at that point. So maybe then you just continue and see what's going to happen. You can always whistle afterwards. But that is a really tough call to make. I think in Canada, and I think I'm sure in Canada, maybe in the US, there are more uh, explicit rules, uh, explicit uh, guidelines to the referee for that. If there's uh, if the skater is the head touching the eyes at some point for the fall, they immediately have to whistle. But uh, it's it's part of uh, like a gut feeling. If, if it's getting dangerous for the skater, I would always whistle myself. But then still you have to, okay, there is, you whistled and then uh, the skater incurs the deduction. So that's a tough call to make. Yeah, and I think for the skaters that you know, you're in such adrenaline and wanting to continue that it's hard for the skater to make for themselves a an informed decision in the moment about whether they're able to keep going. It seems like it's one of the, the tougher things to get a handle on. It is really very tough. So if you whistle and the skater, uh, you ask the skater to take a time out because you think there's a there's an injury or there could be an injury, there could be something serious. Yeah, once once there's a, there's this uh, this injury timeout, okay, then you have to incur this deduction. So it's uh, it's kind of tricky. There will never be a hundred percent fail-free proof of, of a process for that. I think, and I think it's getting better and better. But now the sport is getting more difficult and more demanding. So I hope not, but we might see uh, more cases like that. Let's say injuries incurred at uh, bad falls during programs. Like I said, I've seen too many over the recent years, mainly in pairs. I, I hope I, I won't see them anymore. I mean, pairs is. Watching the juniors, I think especially it's so clear how when you can see people working through their lifts and their twists where it's not effortless for them yet, it's really obvious just how um, intense and dangerous some of those things can be. Yeah, of course, it's um, it, it's the job as of the coaches to see, okay, what is safe for them to to do at each level of their development. Uh, is it safe for them to do a carry? Is it safe to do, for them to do a one-hand lift? Uh, so you have to make that decision. And then still something can happen. Even to the best teams, things happen. So it's uh, like like we've seen at Worlds, and like I've seen at some high-level international competitions. It's, it's always problematic for, for everyone. And even for the judges, it's problematic. Is If there is a bad fall and a timeout, uh, you have to reflect this in the components. There is a three-minute break. The skater is back on the ice. How do you reflect it in the component? That is really difficult. In other sports, if you have a timeout, uh, then you're out. So we, we don't have that. So we have to do something and adjust our components in some sort of way. But it's that's one of the hardest things. The referee also has a role, I think, in some of the processes around accountability for judges. We were talking a little bit about the OAC and how um, there are guidelines in place for catching examples of national bias. Could you talk a little bit about how that works? 
So the OAC works at uh, the level of Junior Grand Prix upwards. So Junior Grand Prix, Senior Grand Prix in the championship. So OAC is in place. They work from home. So they get sent the list of anomalies and they have to comment on each anomaly. And apart from that, they have to comment on, they have to analyze for cases of uh, suspected national bias and they have to comment on that. So even if, if, a mark, if, if some marks are in the corridor, it can still be a national bias. I can sort of play a game, let's say, and say, okay, I mark my scale a little bit higher and the other scale a little bit lower, and I'm still in the corridor, but the net effect is quite significant. Skating scores uh, is highlighting that uh, really well. So that's a good tool. I'm not sure that the how the process works with ISU. It not, it's not working the same way that skating scores evaluates that. There's another algorithm for that. But this is a job uh, that OEC has to do. And also the referee has to check uh, for these cases and comment in their report towards ISU. So referee makes reports uh, towards ISU and also OEC. The referee mainly uh, defends the, the anomalies of the judge. That, that's what, that what usually happens. And so an anomaly would be one judge marked an element or a skater um, very differently than the majority of the other judges? Yes, if I would be referring, then I would comment on that anomaly. And maybe we discuss this element in the roundtable discussion to see what is the acceptable range. And as a referee, I would say, okay, for me, the range from minus one to plus one is acceptable, but plus two is not acceptable. Or minus two is not accepted. So my opinion as a referee then counts in, in the whole process of evaluation of that judge's anomalies. So then the OEC comments on that as well. So there's then already two reports that goes to the technical committee. Technical committee evaluate by themselves. And then I think it goes to the sport director and to the vice president. So there's multiple layers of evaluation. First of all, if there's too many mistakes made, made by a judge or if there's cases of national bias. So that goes through multiple layers of, uh, of evaluation by different bodies within ISU. I think that's a fair process because uh, well, one body can say, uh, yes, this is national bias. And another will say, well, actually, maybe the judge just made mistakes. I think it's good that there are these multiple layers, but if it's very obvious, okay, then it's obvious and uh, sanctions need to be taken. Yeah, and that's the only point at which this becomes public then is if it gets to the level of the disciplinary commission or something along the where they are actually looking at potential sanctions for a clear case of national bias. Yeah, well, there's uh, sanctions that you are not aware of. That's our, that's called assessments. So in the ISU rules, it's there's assessment one, assessment two, and assessment three, and assessment four. So it's basically uh, a letter of warning, but expressed in an assessment. So if you made too many errors, then you will get an assessment. If you have a, the next assessment is assessment two. If the errors are, I think with national bias, it works like that. If the bias is, let's say, bad enough, you can get an, immediately an assessment two. Or if it's really bad, it can go to the disciplinary commission straight away. So there's multiple of these assessments. With assessment four, you're basically demoted. So you're moving from ISU level judge to international or from international, you would move out. But I don't think that maybe it happened once that someone got moved from ISU to international. I think it happened during Olympic 2006. And other than that, I cannot recall a case. But these assessments are not published. Uh, I think maybe the ISU will, will say, okay, there are, but I, I don't think even they published it anymore. There have been 26 assessment ones, uh, six assessment twos, but I don't think that's been published anymore. And, and effectively, they're not published even with a name. So we, we don't know if uh, who, who got an assessment. As a federation, if, if someone gets an assessment, the federation gets a copy. Mm -hmm. So we would know if one of our judges uh, got an assessment. And that's it. Cases of national bias, uh, usually I think they will give a warning first of all. And then if it's if it's really bad, the, maybe they give uh, an assessment straight away. 
first or first a warning. And I think the DC cases, uh, I don't think it will happen with the first occurrence of a national buy, but I'm not sure of that as I'm not working in the uh, in, in that part, of course. In trying to understand this, I went back and looked what was available on those those cases. And it, it did seem like from the small sample size that there is, that if the judge hadn't previously received a warning that the case might get dismissed, but if there had been a previous example or previous warning that it was more likely to actually move toward a one or two year suspension. I, I may recall from the cases of 2018 Olympics, those judges had already been warned mm -hmm. before. So the disciplinary cases came not out, falling out of the air, but there had been warnings issued before and maybe even assessments, but I don't, we don't know about that. So it, it wasn't the first occurrence. So there is a, there is a process to check all of this, to, even, to check errors and to check national by. There is quite a thorough process about it, even if we're not informed like who got which assessments, you know, that, that's not published. What happens if there is, you know, an error that's obviously an error, if a judge either you know intentionally or not you know mark something as minus five when everyone else has marked it as plus three do those scores always stand is there ever any way to go in and say you know yeah. this was this was clearly a mistake and we should fix it i mean i guess if the judge is so out of the range they might not their score might not stand but yeah what kind of safeguards are there this is why the highest and the lowest score are eliminated. I recall myself that I made an input error here and there. Well, maybe once or twice I did an input error. I did an input error at Skate Canada a couple of years ago where the box dropped late and my minus five went in the wrong element. So I took mm. plus two and it was a minus five on the list. So it's stupid. But this happens. I didn't notice, but this happened. So that's why the highest and the lowest are eliminated. I could, I could so I could show on my sheet. Hey, here is a plus two, and on the list is a minus five. Let's say uh, so. It was it was obvious that it was an input error. Yeah. So it's not a wrong judgment. It's just an input error and let's say an oversight that uh, that a judge didn't check their marks properly that were entered. So that is, that is let's say, an easy one. Um, if there's a, a wrong judgment, I mean, if I deliberately put a plus two and everyone else puts a minus five, that's obviously, well, I could be the right one, but with in this, let's say, in this case, probably I'm the wrong one. Uh, so then it's an error. And um, let's say if it's an ISU event, junior Grand Prix, senior Grand Prix, depending on the how large is the event, you're allowed a certain number of errors. If you are below this threshold, then uh, the errors are not, let's say, recorded. If uh, I think that if there's 30, more than 30 skaters, there are five errors allowed. So that's the, the definition of an error to me is anomaly converted into error by OEC and confirmed by technical committee and so on. Uh, so you're allowed a certain number of errors. And if you are below that level, they're basically ignored. If you are above this number, then they're registered. And if you have, I think, 10, uh, then you can get an assessment straight away. Or if you accumulate 10 over the season, then you also can get an assessment. So it, then it's registered and it's kept in the records of ISU. So you're allowed a certain number of errors, which is normal, like a judge 35 junior women last week in Ostrava for five and a half hours. Uh, how many marks did I put in? 35 times seven, that's 225 or even more, plus the three components. So that's uh, 10. So that's 350 marks in short program and it's uh, 500 plus in free skates. So maybe <laughs> there could be <laughs> the one or the other error here and there. That's normal, I think, uh, as it's uh, really a tough job to, to remain focused over five and a half hours. So. I think it's fair to to have some some allowance of errors, but if it's too much, of course, it needs to be taken care of. I think this. Pro do you understand this process? Yeah. I think it's uh, it's it's quite clear. Yeah. Uh, it's a certain there is a certain tolerance towards errors but of course you cannot have too many yeah it just strikes me how much the balance for skating judges is similar to some of the debates that i hear about in my professional work you know how to have political reform and anti-corruption work in the criminal justice system there's often these arguments about you have to have some form of accountability or some form to make sure that these people are doing the right okay. thing they're not biased they're not being you know influenced by personal benefit 
but it's also so important that they're independent. In the US, lots of judges are elected and most reformers think that that's a bad thing because you get people who are you know, not competent and not doing their jobs well because they're trying to be elected. But if the judges aren't elected, then you know, what other forms of accountability are there? And so you, know, you want judges in skating to be able to make their own opinions and not just follow the consensus of, of the group, but also if, how do you judge if they're doing a good job other than judging them against the consensus of the group? Yes, that is uh, that is a problem. As uh, the outlier might be the right one in some cases, you know. So it's uh, that is the hard one. But uh, in general, I think well, there is there is a process of accountability, um, as there are these multiple layers of uh, of assessment: OAC, technical committee, sport director, vice president, referee helps as well. There is five layers of accountability, which is quite a lot, I think. That doesn't say, okay, uh, if, if I'm the only one that's correct. It could happen in some cases. It, it, it's not the norm, but it happens from time to time that the skater is overmarked and uh, one judge is right, or a skater is undermarked and one judge is right for either a DOE or a component. This, this happens. So then you need a, a judgment call by the referee, by OAC, etc., to say, okay, this one was right, and uh, this is not an error, but this is actually the, the, the correct mark, and the others are wrong. This is rare, but it, it happens. I wanted to ask you, lastly, um, just a little bit about skating in the Netherlands. It's been interesting to see that a country that has such a strong skating tradition has been, you know, relatively small federation when it comes to the figure skating side of the sport. But that does seem like it's maybe starting to change a little bit, that there's some more skaters in the Grand Prix this year, um, and certainly a number of top skaters training in the Netherlands now. So curious if you had any, uh, you know, observations on that yeah, I have I have a lot of observation about that. So first of all, it's uh, it, partly it's maybe a self fulfilling prophecy. As we are strong in speed skating, everyone wants to, to go speed skating. Now that we're strong in short track, everyone also wants to go to short track, which is in another ring, which is in the 60, 60 by 30 ring. Uh, so that that is a, that is a part of a bias as well. Eh? This is like a self-fulfilling, but we are strong in one part, so let's all do this. And then there's, uh, in, in general, there's our build. As Dutch people, we are quite tall. Don't have the specific build of the tiny, slim figure skater. Like uh, I'm, I'm one meter seventy-three, which is far below the average in Holland as a male. Which I think the, the average is one eighty-five, eighty-six. So that's six foot two or something, which is quite tall. And, and doesn't help us to be successful in figure skating. Naturally, our build is not helpful for being successful in figure skating. So that's one thing. However, um, we have a history in figure skating. This is long ago, of course. We had an Olympic champion in 64. We had also uh, been successful in Olympics in 60, in 68, in 72. And then it's, I think, maybe 76. No, 72 was the last. No, 76 was the last uh, appearance, I think. And then it sort of fall, fell flat. And now we're, we're improving. Uh, well, we had a skater at the Olympics for the first time in 46 years, Lindsay van Zunder. And she did quite well, I think, in top 20. So that's pretty mm -hmm. good. Um, then we have two pair teams. One pair team has gotten the two, two Grand Prix assignments. And then Lindsay got an assignment for a Grand Prix. And then we, now we have this national center also uh, starting in Hidden Vein, where we also have, of course, speed skating and short track. And we have Aljona Savchenko as a head coach. So, yeah. So we're we starting to, to, to build. Well, we are already building for years, but now it's, it's, uh, it's, it's going to be accelerated. There's already international interest in the center. So now we have Crawfords from Sweden uh, as a pair team coming to the Netherlands and skater. I, I watched them today. I've been to the center today. I saw them. <laughs> um, so, but, but this is in the startup phase, you know, so it's, it's only, it's, it's shaping up. I would say this national center is a prerequisite mm -hmm. to, to get more funding. 
because this is the model that Dutch sport basically demands to have a national center. And then uh, if this is successful, if the athletes are successful, then you can get more funding. So it, it's all going in, I think, the right direction. But of course, it uh, it takes time. Uh, but it's good that we have Aljona there. And uh, that, of course, raises uh, uh, international awareness and interest. And uh, we hope to get more international participation there. And also to have maybe seminars mm-hmm. there uh, in the center from ISU that's uh, well, we could have pair seminars there dance seminars there there's lots of opportunities it does seem like once a center gets a certain critical mass of of skaters or coaches there then it's sort of the gravitational pull then brings in um, other people after that sometimes quite quickly uh, this is an interesting process to to watch what it takes to get enough in place to make that happen Absolutely. And now we have only Aliona there. Uh, let's say, the, the, I think the best example is Montreal with Icelands. That's like a, a, a global hub for Icelands. And that there's a big coaches team. There's a huge community of dance teams from all over the world. So that's, I think, the best example of, uh, of the gravitational pull, as you call it. And maybe we can achieve the same in the years to come. Definitely, we are improving, and also the let's say the we, we because we are one federation for all disciplines. So that's uh, short track, speed, marathon. We have as well, which is not Olympic, but it's in a speed skating discipline. Inline skating is in there as well, and of course, figure skating. Only ice hockey is not in the federation, but there's this uh, over the the past years the, the improved sense of of team spirit. There was so much media attention around the Olympic participation. Mm. Mm. And everyone was uh, was really helpful there, and and we we were like acting as a team. Also at Congress, uh, people noticed we are acting as a team. I think the team spirit helps us to uh, yeah to to become better. Take this center in here, vein. Everything is there. The medical is there. Office is there. So the figure skaters can can see how the speed skaters are 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 doing off ice and doing their their workout, and that's uh, I think inspiring to them. Yeah, that's a really interesting thing to be able to have that comparison and sharing of resources between the sports we could only uh, achieve this with this federation i mean if we would be by ourselves as figure skate we will not we would not have the funding and not have all these facilities so actually we are benefiting from speed and short track and, and we are hoping we're hoping to to achieve synergies in this center and now it's just a startup we're just starting up since first of august so it's uh, it's one month and a, and a little bit, so it's uh, it's it's just the the, the early beginning. Before uh, I let you go, is there anything that we haven't touched on in terms of you know your hopes for the future direction that figure skating might go, um, that the rules might go, that we haven't touched on, or that you want to emphasize again? Um, I think we touched on all that we had to speak about. Uh, in general, I hope for uh, let's say talk single and pairs a little bit of a different approach towards the programs, a distinction between short program and free skating, like it is the case in ice dancing. So to make it more interesting, more attractive, allow for choreo elements in free skate, like choreo lifts or choreo spin or something like that. We are moving in this direction, but uh, it could be more distinct, I think. So this is for the next years. In ice dance, I would hope for fewer restrictions and fewer rules to get it more clear for us, easier for us, and of course, more understandable for audience. What I see now from single skating with the requirements for level four spins, it's already so much more interesting in spins than what I see now than the last season. So we are moving in the right direction. But uh, of course, this is a process and uh, yeah, we need to make more adjustments as we progress. The sport always needs to progress. I, I hear also talks about making uh, in, increasing the value of spins, which I think also is good. The only constant that there is that uh, that we were always changing and, and uh, evolving and developing. That's how sport is. That's how life is. We always have to change. We always have to adapt. We always have to develop. Many ideas more for next conferences. <laughs> I know I said last question, and I want to ask you one more thing, though, which is how do you think that fans of the sport and people you know who follow it really closely can make positive impact toward any of these changes? I'm asking this partly because I'm on Twitter and I see some informed commentary and a lot of uninformed commentary and a lot of people being very mad at the ISU and wanting to see changes and 
as someone who tries to organize people to make change in policy, I often get frustrated because it feels like a lot of, sometimes a lot of wasted energy because it's not pointed at anything more useful. But I don't know what to tell them, you know, a good answer is where to advocate for what they would like to see the sport be as fans. So if you if there's good ideas, they can come to me and uh, I can uh, discuss. <laughs> it's in a way strange. I, I think I, I found sort of my, my my niche in the world skating community as someone who, uh, who who is open to change, who wants to bring the proposals to, to make the changes happen, but not being within ISU. I think it's the only way. Uh, ISU has their own ideas and me being outside, uh, have my own ideas, and sometimes it's better to speak with my voice than with ISU voice, you know, so mm -hmm. uh, it's, this is also a self-fulfilling prophecy, uh, as people expect interesting proposals from, from us as a federation, so if fans are, uh, are having good ideas, they can come to me and uh, well, let's discuss if this is a good idea, we can make it maybe into a proposal for next Congress, why not? If it's not coming from ISU, then uh, then we can propose something or I can discuss with ISU because, of course, I know everyone. ISU already said that Congress, we need to be a little bit closer together so that we're not diverging because they have ideas, I have ideas that should be in sync with each other, not uh, diverge. Uh, otherwise, we have a problem. I'm, I'm very open to to engage and uh, to, to, to discuss to discuss interesting ideas that, uh, that are beneficial to the sport. And um, I have, of course, my my own eye. I you have their own eye, and the fans have their other their their own perspective, which is helpful and needed, as they are the ones that uh, that are paying the tickets to go to the competitions. And yeah, because we need the arenas to be full, uh, so that uh, the federations make a good buck of the, with the events. So we are all we are all helping each other in this way. So good ideas are always welcome. Thank you so much. It's been really fun to get to talk to you. Nice to talk to you. Thank you again to Jeroen for sharing his knowledge and his ideas with me and with the skating community. Transcripts and further resources are linked in the show notes. You can follow Jeroen on Twitter at JeroenPrinzNL. You can reach me with comments or suggestions for topics and people I should talk to by email at fsfuturepodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram and Twitter at futurefspodcast. Remember to subscribe on whatever platform you use, leave a review, and share with your friends.